This podcast is brought to you by StoryKingBooks.com. Sign up to receive a free copy of my latest ebook novella, Kane's Confession. If you would like to learn how to support this show, visit www.patreon.com forward slash the Story King. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the Story King Podcast, the show all about fiction, film, and form. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today I have a very special guest. I'll be having a conversation with police officer Rashad Coleman. Rashad Coleman is an African-American police officer. He started his career in law enforcement with the Philadelphia Police Department in 2014. He's recently written a memoir called Fatherless Son about how the justice system tore his family apart and brought them back together. Rashad has a powerful story about how when he was just three years old, his father was sentenced to two life sentences for heinous crimes he didn't even commit. I won't say any more than that. Here is my conversation with Officer Rashad Coleman. Officer Rashad, welcome to the Story King podcast. Sir, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Very excited. It's a, you're a new kind of guest. Usually I have, a, you know, you are a writer, but I haven't had a police officer on and talking about a memoir and a powerful life story. Uh, I know your book is largely about your dad's story, right? Yes, sir. Fatherless son. But before we get into that, why don't you first tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I was born in Wilmington, uh, Delaware, 1983, uh, the youngest of three boys. My father actually wanted a girl. Uh, so after my, sec- after my mother had her second kid, uh, he had to do some convincing in order for, her, for them to have a girl. And, you know, to their surprise, here I come, right? Right. Fresh out the street, <laughs> the boy. So it come, come from a good family. Wilmington, Delaware is a, is a hardworking neighborhood, um, but it is like most uh, African-American inner city, um, you know, right at that poverty level type of towns where you have your drugs, your crime and, and things of that sort. So it was a, a, r- a rough time growing up, but nevertheless, our family always stuck together. Mother always taught us good values to stay out of trouble, uh, do what you need to do in life in order to be successful. Uh, don't blame anyone else and, um, you know, work as hard as you can. My father was arrested early in seventh grade. I was introduced to the game of football um, where I really found something to kind of take out a lot of the aggression that I had and a lot of that testosterone that I had mm-hmm. um, really transi- transitioned well onto the football field. And that also gave me a bunch of um, African-American male uh, influencers who to this day are, are pretty good mentors. Um, by the time I 10th grade in high, 10th, 11th grade in high school, a guy by the name of Cordy Greenlee. He was uh, uh, in a basketball practice of mine. He, he was my head football coach and he began talking to me about college, uh, which is something I thought was far from my mind um, because I said like the place that I grew up in, a lot of people weren't going to college. And uh, once he planted that seed in my mind to go to college, it just put a spark in me that I could kind of do something else other than what was done. And it mm-hmm. was sort of what my mother had always told me was you need to be different. You don't, you don't want to be um, like a lot of people out here and go the same route because you see that that ends in death. You see that that ends in, in jail and things of that sort. So I'm thinking, man, this is this is my this is my not my savior, but it's something that's that's going to really help me out one day is by going to college. So I was fortunately to get a scholarship to Delaware State University nice. and where I had an amazing time. 
I was never good in um, academia. So I had a lot of tutors. I sat up a lot of nights. Um, had a lot of girlfriends that would help me out with my writing and math <laughs> and things of that sort, which always helped. Um, and in four years, I graduated, uh, became a teacher after that. Okay. And uh, a couple years later, I entered the Philadelphia Police Academy, um, where I just I, I found a home in law enforcement. It's something that I just fell in love with after a while. Very nice. Now, your book, Fatherless Son, it is a memoir. Why don't you walk us through what the book is about and why you decided to tell the story, just in a general sense? Sure. I think the, the, the idea about the story and about me um, writing a story came about um, from me doing a couple blog posts on Facebook. Um, I would have a, uh, whenever I would do these uh, real personal blogs about some things in my life, people would always comment, oh man, you need to write a book, you need to write a book. Um, at the same time, I was researching my family and um, my family hails from, uh, my mother's side hails from uh, South Carolina. And I was trying to go back and, and find out who I was related who I was related to and to see if I could find out what happened to my family generations down in terms of slavery and things of that sort. Did my family come from a slave family? And what I found was that I couldn't find all, I could, I could find some individuals, but I couldn't find um, what their mentalities were or any writings on them or, or what they did for a living and things of that sort. So it was kind of like, it was kind of like just ghosts um, to go down my generation. Mm -hmm. So I said to myself, I don't want my grandkids to have that same, that same experience of trying to look for me or look for their, their grandfather or their, or their grandmother right. and not know what their mentalities were when it came to everyday living, where, where they stood politically, um, where they worked at, uh, what were some struggles in their life? What were some of their accomplishments in life? So having that, having that empty space, when I went to look back, back at my family, really encouraged me to start writing. And when I started writing, one of, the, I wanted to, one of the things that I wanted to put forth was a life of a child that grew up without a father, I thought mm -hmm. was very important. And within that story, within that encap encapsulating story would also be uh, my father, uh, my mother, my brothers, grandparents and things of that sort. So I could tie it all into one to not only tell a good story, but also have that um, fine thumbprint for my for the next generation and the generation after that to be able to understand uh, what their family has went through, which I think is a, a very unique story. Yeah, and I think that's an awesome reason too to write a memoir. I haven't heard anybody say that, but you, you're right. You're leaving this like heirloom for your family and a history. Really, you're leaving mm -hmm. a history behind and a written record. And there are multiple copies of the book, and and people will have this for generations to come. So that's an awesome reason. Yeah, when you think about people like uh, like a Frederick Douglass, that who who taught himself how to read and began to write books, you know, you can go back and you can actually look at his his the way he escaped from uh, slavery and things like that. So all the people that helped him along the way, these things would be null void if he didn't write these things down. And imagine how many people probably have the same story but never wrote that story down, right? Uh, for whatever for whatever reason that is. So I felt like I want to I want to be able to write this story. Um, not only because it's a good story, but also, uh, which we'll talk about, there was a lot of twists and turns that went along with my family story. Right, right. Wow. So take us to, through the events that led up to your father's arrest. He was arrested when you were three. Is that right? Yes, sir. So he was arrested when I was three years old um, in the town of Newark, Delaware. Uh. Um, he woke up one morning. He had to be, I don't want to get times incorrect. It's in the book, but he, he had to be to work around 630 um, so he woke up, gets dressed, starts walking to work. And it's just like your, 
true crime TV show where a cop, you know, pulls up, questions them a little bit. Um, they bring a victim there. The victim says it's not him. Um, he keeps on moseying on, uh, goes to work. Two hours later, he is um, arrested um, by the same police officers came back and said, we're arresting you. They arrest him inside the interrogation room. Police reported that he admitted to the crime. And uh, subsequently, he, he was sentenced to two life sentences after taking it to court. Wow. And um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. And I never knew what this story was about. I never knew uh, why my father was arrested until uh, I think it was in, in the eighth grade. I had a girlfriend and I went home and I spoke to my mother about it. And the girlfriend, um, she happened to be white at the time. And my mother sat me down and said, you know, I don't want you dating white girls. Mm. She said, well, I'm not, no, I've never talked to you about your father, but he's in prison right now, serving two life sentences off the testimony of a white woman. And I learned that he was eventually, he, he was essentially arrested for um, the rape and um, rape and burglary of an 89 year old woman that night, after which he, he was supposed, he allegedly kidnapped a 22 year old white woman um, after that event and sexually assaulted her and robbed her at the time also. And then a, a call went out to search for this person and my father is seen walking to work and he is subsequently charged with these crimes. Wow. So I'm a little confused though. So he got two life sentences. I mean, I'm not, I'm not in law enforcement, but there were no deaths involved in these crimes. No, no, no deaths involved in these crimes. So, I mean, even oh. if you, even if he was guilty, like to me, two life sentences sounds crazy for those crimes. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, is it me or, or <laughs> no, 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 it's not you. I mean, even if it was a death, I know people that have, killed someone and served 25 years and, and, and been out of jail. This had no death. The robbery was actually eight US dollars that he got charged with. Wow. The sexual, the sexual assault was that the woman uh, claimed that he rubbed her leg and, and put her hand on his genitalia. Um, and then I found out, which was remarkable, that he never even was charged in court with the rape, um, which was the brutal incident that happened. Right. Yeah, he was never charged with that. But he got two life sentences because that's what he was charged. He was charged with two counts of kidnapping. So with two counts of kidnapping, um, it's a life sentence for each kidnapping. So that's really, it was. Yeah. Is that still the case for kidnapping? Uh, as far as the law, I'm not exactly sure, but I know okay. I know in Delaware, a life sentence didn't necessarily mean life. It meant 25 years. Okay. So it was essentially 50 years. Gotcha. Um, and and because he wasn't charged with the rape, um, is what kind of got me interested in the case because. One, I have a you know a grandmother my, 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 myself, and I'm like, man, if if my grandmother got raped, I wonder, I would wonder who did this. You know, right. was, was justice ever served? And if my father did do it, I believe he should be in jail for the rest of his life for doing something like this. And uh, when I went back to look at the documents to look at all the papers, I saw that police initially thought that the same person committed this crime because it was the same exact description okay. of the man, and they were two blocks away from each other. And within um, a short time period from each other well, too. same exact time period when the when the when the officer was called to the uh person i had got gotten kidnapped at the same time they got a call to the uh, apartment of the 89 year old woman uh that was raped now how do we know your your father's not guilty of the crimes not to be insensitive sure. but you wrote a whole memoir about it so how, how do we know that that isn't the case well well one we don't know that for 100 percent because mm -hmm. we weren't there Right. It was, it was only uh, three people there. The woman that got raped, 
um, whoever the suspect was and the woman I got kidnapped. So the, the, what got me real interested in the case was because um, he was never charged with the crime of rape because there were fingerprints found on the window of the woman that, <clears throat> that was raped. So they figured yeah. out where the guy came in to the, to the, to the house by the, not only those fingerprints on her house, but there were also fingerprints at the next door. So the, whoever the person was, he tried to get in one window, couldn't get into the window, left his fingerprints, went to the other window, got into the window, rapes the woman, um, washes up, leave fingerprints everywhere, leaves DNA everywhere. Those fingerprints were then um, matched with my father's fingerprints and subsequently sent to the FBI and matched with my father's fingerprints. And they said it was negative. It was not Daniel Coleman. So we are not charging him um, with that particular crime. Um, yeah. So uh, at the ATM, there was uh, uh, there was video of a suspect um, coming up, coming up, approaching the woman before before he kidnaps her. Now, if you remember, I said earlier that the woman got to the scene and she said, that's not him. Um, the reason why she said that wasn't him is one, he didn't have a coat on, but his facial hair was different at the time. At court, she reversed her testimony and said, I'm 100 uh, percent sure that 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 was him. Now, the reason why I know uh, or well, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly sure it wasn't him is because when my father was stopped, when I went back and got the poli original police reports, when my father was stopped and the woman was brought to my father to identify him, there was another call on the radio for a male matching the same description with the coat on um, mm. that was described by both victims about five blocks away. Police go and they chase this individual, can't find the individual, but they happen to find the coat where that individual ran, which had blood on it, which they believed was blood uh, from, from the victim. Oh, wow. So afterwards, so I'm looking at all this information and I'm saying, well, there had to be something that, that tied him in, uh, some kind of physical evidence that tied him into the case. And after reading more of the police report, I saw that there were six witnesses at the mm. time. Um, there were three witnesses at the ATM where the woman was kidnapped at. And there were three witnesses where she jumped out of the vehicle a little, uh, he, he like drove around the corner or something like that. And she seen some people. So she jumped out of the vehicle, jumped onto the curb. There were also three witnesses over there. And one of the witnesses, ironically, um, did point my father out at the ATM and said, yeah, I believe that that's, that's the same guy, Daniel Coleman. Five other witnesses said, there's no way that that is the guy mm. that were at the, at the crime scene. So I went back, got the uh, court testimony for, for the two days of testimony. Not one witness showed up to court to testify that it was either my father or it wasn't my father. And lastly, in the police report, um, it states that the detective had uh, gathered fingerprints from the vehicle, fingerprints and DNA from the vehicle where the suspect was sitting at. He said he got nine great fingerprints, which they sent off to the FBI. So I read through the court testimony. I'm saying to myself, well, this had to be presented in court. If these are, these are fingerprints that were sent to the FBI, they had to come back and match my father. Mm -hmm. Sure enough, I, I did a Freedom of Information Act to the FBI. FBI sent me a letter back with all the information of the results and said that that was negative. Those fingerprints didn't match your father. Wow. So none of the fingerprints really matched your father, not on the window, not in the car. There were no matches to your father's fingerprints. Is that right? No matches at all. And uh, wow. some of the, you know, some of the evidence that they did have, um, which I internally struggled with, was one that they said he had uh, admitted to these crimes. Um, so in talking to him and speaking with him, um, I'm asking him, you know, did you admit to these crimes? Uh, you know, were you flustered? And he said, well, they, 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 they were kind of confusing me by some of the questions. And I'm saying to myself, well, how can you get confused about committing a rape or committing a kidnapping? 
And he said they would ask him things um, like, uh, do you have a girlfriend? You know, when's the last time you were with your girlfriend? Uh, when's the last time she touched you uh, in a sexual way? And he would tell them, oh, that was yesterday. And they, they would say, then they would say, oh, so you did kidnap the girl and sexually assault her. <laughs> right. And he said, well, no, I'm talking about, I'm talking, I'm talking about my girlfriend. And, uh, and so what I did also is looked into the police report to see if anybody else had been interrogated or any, any other witnesses had been taped or signed any, any, signed any documents about this night. And it, it came out in the court testimony that the victim was, in, was questioned in the same room that my father an hour later was questioned in and she was uh, recorded through video, through videotape or through, through a recording, but they didn't record my father's. Uh, this interrogation that they said he had. So I found out to be very suspicious. Also. Right. Yeah. Now, let me ask you, did they ever catch the actual suspect? Well, to this day, they believe my father was the suspect. Still. Um, still. Uh, the, the, the rape has, has never, been, never been closed, to my knowledge. Um, I've tried, I've given multiple Freedom of Information Act requests uh, documents from not only the FBI but also that local police department, and they haven't given me uh, any uh, any of that information because they tell me that I'm because I'm not uh, related to the person or or had anything to do with that case. They can't release any of that information to me, even though my father was initially arrested uh, for that case. But now, was the arrest you said not for the rape? It was for the burglary. The arrest was for both the rape both. and the burglary. Yeah, but after they looked at the fingerprints. Um, from the window, they said, well, we can't charge him with the rape because, you know, obviously we have the fingerprints of the person that it is. Right. So he ended. So that's what I'm saying. So the charges yeah. were just really for the burglary. Is that correct? The charges were just for the kidnapping. For the kidnapping. For the I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I got you. It's a fascinating story and it's, and it's kind of wild. So then let's see. So let me ask you the type of uh, person your father was, is, uh, according to like your family at the time. You know, was there a sense of injustice in what happened to your father? I mean, you were only three, so you're, you're not going to know. But was it always clear to the other members of your family that your father was wronged or taken advantage of by the criminal justice system in place at the time? Sure. So that's what I had I come to learn later on in life and talking to my grandmother who raised funds at the time, uh, who worked diligently to try to get um, some money for an attorney and, and his mother and his grandmother, his brothers and sisters. And they all believed for a long time that he was, you know, just wrongfully convicted. Um, some of the things that he had working against him was that he had been arrested uh, two or three times before that crime. Mm -hmm. um, most of which when he was, was, was a juvenile, petty, you know, petty theft, stealing a dollar here, a dollar there, mm -hmm. uh, things, stealing something out of a vehicle, things of that sort. Um, so I think that went a long way with the prosecutor kind of pushing that this is right this is in fact the person and as far as your your family you know your mom and whoever were they were they shocked by the whole situation i mean they didn't really talk to you about it till you were in eighth grade is that right yeah 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 my mother she, she just kept kind of kept it away from me mm -hmm. um like i said until i was in the eighth grade and a lot of the information that we've talked about so far, they never knew of. They never knew about. They never knew that there were fingerprints found at two crime scenes. They never knew that he was a, he was originally initially arrested for two different crimes at two different places. Um, his attorney never told them that there were six witnesses, six right. witnesses that never made it to court. Um, that would that happened to be there that morning at at four o'clock, you know, four thirty 
uh, in the morning, uh, most of which who said it, it wasn't my father. So this was all kind of enlightening to them also. Um, it brought back a lot of tears and, and, and brought up a lot of, you know, some, some heart, heartfelt conversations uh, about the criminal justice system, which I'm a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of a tough conversation to have with everyone about how this could happen, because I don't know how something like this, like this could happen. So, right. Yeah. Now, w- once you find out about it, you're in eighth grade. Did you ever like want to visit your father at that point? Did you ever have like a desire? Like, well, I- I'd like to go talk to him. And did that conversation ever come up? Yeah. So my father, my mother took me to see my father for the first time when I was about uh, four or five years old, somewhere around there. So we would go to, I would go to see him uh, maybe once, once or twice every year. Um, oh, okay. But because the rest of my my friends' fathers were in jail, not not in the house always, it just kind of seemed like formality to me. It wasn't, you know, it was nothing um, very big to me for me for me not to have a father inside of the home. Because, like I said, it was kind of it's kind of just a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, out of all my friends, I think one of our one of my friends uh, had a father in the home. Everybody else, you know, most of them I've never to this day I've never met their fathers. So it was something that was unfortunately kind of normal uh, to us. But yeah, we, we as I as I started getting older in high school and college, I would write them um, a couple of times. But, you know, that that relationship was kind of off and on. Um, and I know now it's it's probably because he couldn't be there. You know, he's reading about me being scoring a touchdown in, in a college game or going first team off state in football in high school. And I'm sure he felt terrible that he can't be there to witness, you know, his son um, doing all these great things. Now, talk about your father's release at this point so what what are the events that led to the release was it just he served whatever time they gave him and and that was it yeah so uh what i talk about in the book is i, b- I believe the chapter is called going back in time i can't don't quote me on it, it, it there's a chapter where I, I go back and forth about what i believe when it comes to the case because as a as a person law enforcement i don't care who the person is if they did the crime they should do the time that matches up with the crime that they committed. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was one point where I'm in the middle of writing this book and in the middle of trying to free him that he calls me and says, well, when, when I go, if, you know, if this thing goes the way you're telling me it's going to go and I go in front of the, 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 the probation parole, what am I going to tell him? And I'm asking him, well, what do you mean? What are you going to tell me? And he says, uh, well, you know, what am I supposed to say when I go in front of him? And I knew just from working in law enforcement and talking to different suspects, that anytime somebody asks you a question that they already kind of know the answer to, that they're hiding something, that they're not mm-hmm. being truthful about something. And uh, so I kind of played the game with them a little bit. And I said, what do you think I, what do you think I would tell you to tell them once you go in front of them? Because I tell them the whole time, just be truthful. If you continue to be truthful throughout this whole process, you won't have a problem. And eventually it'll come to light. And he said, yeah, but I told him I did it at one point in time. I said, you know, this is, this is, this is a heartbreak for me because I'm saying to myself, what the, you know, We've right. got all this information. We've got all this physical information and this physical evidence. How are you saying to me now uh, that you that you told me sometime that you did it? Did you tell him in the interrogation room? And he said, no, I didn't tell him in the interrogation room, but I told him when I went up for parole that I did it. And I said, well, why would you do that? Did you do it? And he said, no, I didn't do it. He said, but you, you, I don't think you really understand what it's like to be in jail. That place is like hell. And after being in there for 15 years, I just wanted to get out and breathe and take a breath. I didn't care. They've already convicted me for it. It it is what it is. Everybody that's in jail, people that have been in there for life are telling me, if you don't admit to it, there's no way possible you're ever going to get out of this place. 
He said, so I, you know, I kind of swallowed my pride and I figured I would just say that I did it in order to get out. And then maybe I can free myself, you know, you know, when I'm outside, not only did he admit to it once, right? So he goes up for the first time and uh, goes in front of the board and then they question him about the crime. And he says that they want you to admit to it before we let you out of this place. And he said, so I, I admitted to it. And then they wrote him two weeks later and said, well, you know, we're not going to release you because you don't know enough about the crime. And, uh, and I asked him, well, why didn't you know enough about the crime? He said, because I didn't commit it. Only things I knew is from what I read, what the detectives told me and what they were telling me inside this paperwork. He said, so I had to go back, figure out what the suspect did to come back up to admit it to the point where they would feel like, okay, he's, you know, he's remorseful for it. So, wow. Yeah. After five <laughs> times of him going, after five times of him going back and forth, um, to the board, which, uh, which I believe was every two years, the fifth time they eventually said, okay, we'll release you now. Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode. I just wanted to take the opportunity to let you know about a brand new resource I recently published. If you're interested in starting your own podcast, I've created an ebook called Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro that walks you through all the little details of producing and launching your own show. So for less than $5, you can own this resource by visiting storykingbooks.com or amazon.com. Those links will be in the show notes. And now back to today's episode. So your father's basically saying, since they're already looking at him like he's guilty, he can't get, just keep saying, you know, like, I didn't do it. He's trying to get out. So he's got to show he's remorseful. So he's, he's, he did it as a strategy to try to get out. Exactly. Exactly. That's his, that's his argument. I see. Um, yeah. Which is, which is, you know, you, get, you, you take it for what it is. You know, I had a difficult time getting over it when I first looked at it. Right, he's right. telling me this and I'm saying... Yo, this is not good, man. <laughs> this is not. <laughs> this is not good. I, I'm just telling you from a law enforcement perspective, this is not good. Um, and then I spoke to my mother uh, about it, and we had a real candid conversation um, about him not telling me from the beginning that this happened. Because you're taught in law enforcement, if somebody's hiding one thing, then they're probably hiding something else. And uh, one thing that she said is, you know, he, he's been through a lot because they live together now. She's saying he's been through a lot. He doesn't have all the conversations with you that he has with me. And I'm telling you, if I was in there for a day, I would probably be willing to cop to something that I didn't do. And then I, so I went back and researched and started reading books. And I found out that it's kind of, I wouldn't say normal, but it's not very hard for police to get somebody to admit to a crime that they never done. They have never no, done. And you actually hear about that all the time. So th that's what I'm saying. Like, it's not like an unheard of thing. Yeah. They, t they do exactly. it on do it on shows you hear about it years later and you're reading about it and they're like oh they said they did it but they didn't really say they did it and it's very common that the cops were trying to confuse them in uh, the interrogation room yeah and there's a there's a case out of norfolk virginia on the norfolk navy base where mm -hmm. it's, a, it's like a landmark case for people admitted to a crime that they didn't do and i believe there were eight people that admitted to killing raping and you know you know by by stabbing of a woman, all of which who never done, who never did it, but somehow they got these people to come in and admit to this, this, this crazy crime. So, and isn't it also sometimes like if you confess to one crime, they'll make like a deal with you that you won't get charged like higher crimes. So there's all yeah. those types of things too, like plea bargains. Is that what they're called? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. And, th and that happens all the time. Um, that happens all the time. R rather than get 10 years, I'll give you a year in probation. 
you know, right. and you never go to jail. So most people would say, I'm not going to spend 10 years, 10 years in prison. I'd rather just take the year probation out here. So now did, did the courts look at the, the evidence uh, that, that you were uh, trying to like present? So, w- so right now I have uh, the evidence and which is even more uh, twists and turns. He, after being out, out of jail for two years, he was called mm-hmm. back into his probation officer and they told him that he has to have a GPS monitor um, on his leg, uh, which mm-hmm. was new to me. So the reason why he had to have a GPS monitor on his leg is because he still had a life sentence. So whenever they give you a life sentence, they can actually monitor you for the rest of your life if they, if wow. they choose to. Um, so based on his crime and based on that kidnapping and that sexual assault, they said that they want to monitor him essentially for the rest of his life. And he has to pay for the monitor. Um, and he's you know, a minimum wage worker who's been in jail for almost 30 years. So you can imagine uh, the financial toll that that would have on him. So we said, okay, let's, let's try to go to the parole board and see if we can get this monitor off your leg. So we go into, in front of the parole board and uh, they question him about it. I sit him down. We, re- we, we rehearse a couple things. I go over some questions with them about, you know, some of the questions that I'm just guessing that they might, they might ask him. And he went in front of the parole board and did an amazing job explaining himself, an amazing job explaining himself. And ironically, um, when you go in front of them, they also have a state's witness who's, a, who's from the state that'll advocate for you not to have whatever you're asking for. And ironically, that person happened to be the attorney general at the time of his arrest and at the time of his sentencing. So uh, one of the questions that they gave him was, well, you admitted to it. So why are you coming here now saying that you didn't admit to it? And he did a great job explaining himself that I had to get out of that place. I had to get out of that place. And now that I'm out of that place, I've found physical evidence to show that I wasn't, I was never even at the crime scene that I was accused of being at. And subsequently, because of that interaction that he's, he's had, uh, the ex-attorney general pulled me to the side and, and me and him uh, talked for a little bit about the evidence that I have. And he wanted me to get that evidence to him. So I have that evidence to him now. And I'm just praying for the best. I'm praying that they can reopen this case and we can, you know, we can go back for force. But, you know, like anything else, you need help. So that, that's another reason why I wrote the book that, you know, hopefully somebody will read this and say, hold on, this is an injustice that happened. You know, what ways can I help it? Not, and it doesn't even need to be financially. It could be just, hey, Rashad, maybe you want to look at this or maybe you want to look at that or maybe you want to talk to this person to be able to uh, free your father and clear your father's name. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound like there's any closure with the case. It's not really freedom to be monitored for the rest of your life. Uh, it's better than jail, <laughs> but uh, but still not not full freedom, you know, and and. You know, and there's nothing that can make up for lost time, you know, for for 28 years. It's a very long time. There's nothing that can really compensate that. So you guys don't really have closure at no. the moment. Not Yeah. I mean, the fact that he has to wear a monitor that that beeps every six hours so he can't have a full time wow. job. Um, he has to pay for it. Like I say, he's making minimum wage work. Right. And, that, you know, that cuts off like half of his half of his check. Um, and the biggest thing, which is passion for me. As I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to believe that my father could commit a crime like this. I don't want to think that that comes down to my DNA um, for someone to be able to do like something like this, you know, to a woman. So that's why I'm fighting so hard um, to, to to free his name and clear his name of these heinous crimes. Sure. Now, given the circumstances, what made you get into law enforcement? I would imagine, you know, people were a bit shocked when you told them you were choosing that line of work. My mother was. 
uh, I don't even know the word for it when I went to her. <laughs> not only do I want to be a police officer, but I want to be a police officer in Philadelphia, which is one of the one of the most crime ridden uh, you know cities in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wanted to do it because I've always seen the influence that police officers could have on neighborhoods, and the influence that I've always had. I I I, I had a rough relationship with police officers, never been in trouble, but I've been searched. You know, the amount of times that I've been searched for no reason. Uh, I, I can't even remember half the times that I've been searched for no reason. And uh, but one thing was I, I knew that the influence that they had. And if I could get in a position like that, maybe I could have an influence to be able to um, talk to kids um, that grew up the same way I grew up and affects uh, neighborhoods the same way, the same neighborhood that I grew up in um, with a behind a badge and with a police uniform. And that's something I've really been pushing for. In Philadelphia, they've allowed me to go into schools and use some of my teaching ability to be able to teach some algebra classes or a geometry class inside of uniform to kids that would never speak to police. So it, it's definitely been a great ride for me. Very cool. Now, I understand you were even awarded the Heroism Award from the city of Philadelphia and some other professional accolades. So you're obviously good at what you do. What's the So is that the passion for you then, just trying to be a positive impact on the community? Is that what drives you as a police officer? Yes, sir. Having that positive impact and just and just having a name for myself. I'm just real big on that and, and trying to always do the right thing. And what, what can I do in this situation? What can I do today uh, to make the world a better place? Sometimes, unfortunately, that means you got to put somebody in jail. Somebody has to go in cuffs. And right. sometimes that means talking to a kid about why, why are you out here with your pants down on the corner or, or, or cur- cursing this person, that person in front of these these grownups and trying to have that conversation uh, with the child. So, yeah, that, that's what drives me, man. It drives me just to try to make the world a better place. And I think if, if we all as individuals can look at ourselves and check ourselves to what we can do to make this world a better place, s- similar to you having this podcast, uh, I think the world will be a better place. Yeah, no, I, I think th- I appreciate that, by the way. So, but yeah, no, that's a very cool attitude to have and, and reason to do what you're doing. I think that's, that's uh, honorable. Switching gears, I'm really curious to get your take and perspective on the climate of modern day criminal justice. So particularly with racial issues, you know, 2020 was rough year to say the least. COVID aside, we had some pretty high profile cases like the George Floyd case, where that instance, uh, you know, it shook the entire nation and it resulted in a death. So where are we at overall in terms of racial issues within our national criminal justice system and imprisonment statistics right now compared to when your father was arrested? Is it worse? Is it the same? Does it vary from state to state? I'd like your thoughts on that. Yeah. Anytime somebody asks this question, I, I think I often think about what hat should I have on? Should I have the, the African-American hat, the black hat, right? <laughs> or should I have the police officer's hat on? <laughs> so to answer your question, uh, where we are in the climate, I would think it depends on who you ask. If you ask police, uh, they feel like they're, or we feel like we are under, you know, this microscope of everything that we do is going to be scrutinized. So right. uh, some officers are saying, well, I don't want to stop that person because I don't want to be seen as a racist. I don't want to lock that person up because I don't want to be seen as a racist or make that decision. And the other standpoint, a lot of African-Americans are seeing it as this is a great thing. This is what we've been dealing with and we've been crying about for years since the civil rights era, Jim Crow era. We've always been saying police officers have been taking advantage of me. And I'm an example of that. Like I said earlier, I can't tell you how many times I've been stopped on the street. Me and a friend just walking down the street and, and we're stopped and, and searched for no apparent reason. So I think it's a great place that we're at right now. I think police should be cautious 
about what they're doing and they should think one, two, and three times about if this is the right decision uh, to be making right now. I think they should be safe, right? Because they have to get home every day also. But on the, and on the other aspect of it, I think with the video cameras and police body worn cameras and cell phone footage, I think also it's it's showing a it's show, starting to show a complete story to the African American community that police work is not always easy. You right. know, um, we have a tendency as African Americans um, to be very reactive and not hold on to that story. So, in terms of the George Floyd story, <clears throat> I would just ask everybody to continue to pay attention to the story um, because there will be a lot of things that come up in the case. Um, that you will maybe maybe find interesting, maybe not know about police work um, and try to educate yourself on police work. You know, for God to sit on someone's neck for that long, I, I, I've never seen anything like that a day in my life. I mean, I was cringing just like um, any other viewer, viewing sure. someone, yeah, scream for their mother uh, as they laid on the ground. You know, I, I'll tell you a quick story in a, in a training that I was at um, to go along with the officers that were standing around. There's a chain that we have where uh, you would be with your partner and uh, your partner would be down the hall and they would say, you're, you're going to get a phone call and you need to go help your partner. And so that phone call would be, hey, your partner's in distress. He's being beat right now. You need to hurry up and go help him. So you would do jumping jacks. You would get yourself real tired and they would say, go. And you run down the hall and you bust into this door to go help your partner. And when you get into the door, your partner is hitting the other person with the baton saying, come on, he's trying to fight us. He's trying to fight us, right? So at that point, you gotta, you have to make a decision. And that decision, they're trying to, they're trying to gauge who you are as a person. Everything, right. everything that you've heard has said, I need to go in there and help my partner. But then you get in there and your partner is doing something wrong. What do you do at that point? And what they were trying to drive home right there is you can't just stand there and watch. Right. You have to do something. You have to go up and grab your partner and, and pull your partner off of this guy and get this person into cuffs. So, you know, those those trainings are really being emphasized right now. So I think that's a that's a good thing. You know, we're, we're looking at um, don't knock warrants um, because of the Breonna Taylor case. And, mm. and we're looking at how we can sort of pull back because we want to keep people alive. And that's always my, you know, when I always, when, anytime I get to talk in, inside of a training, I'm always saying, you know, what can we do to keep people alive? I know, I know sometimes, unfortunately, people have to get shot or something has to happen and things can happen. But is, was there anything that the officer could have done to keep that person alive? So, you know, and I would imagine, too, like as a you know, I have police officers and my family, too. And, you know, we get into these conversations. But, um, you know, a lot of situations, too, are like pure adrenaline when you're in the heat of a moment. And it's not always like this racist issue. Right. It's, it's sometimes you get caught up, you make a wrong decision. And then it's like it, it blows up into this this whole thing on the media, you know, but but a lot of it, too, is the cops are scared, too. You know, they're in this situation and they don't know what's going to happen or whatever. So there's 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 fear and there's reaction. Right. When when you're in like a scary situation. Yeah. For example, uh, you know, when how you say police are scared, um, some of the some of the I would say the most I don't know if the word terrifying is, is the. Uh, the right word for it but when you're doing a car stop and it's late at night mm -hmm. most police know that that's that right there can be deadly to most police officers right so we're on 10 right the person and the vehicle is just as scared so they're on 10 and they don't know what's what's going to happen so how about how about the officer take his time to get into the vehicle and and the person in the vehicle turn their light on 
and just you know put their hands on a, on 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 the steering wheel, and then everybody is safe. You know, the officer mm -hmm. is safe, the person in the vehicle is safe, and then we all can can make it home because that's that's what everybody wants, man. Everybody wants to to get home and and, and get back to our families. Um, but unfortunately, if I'm on ten and the person is arguing with me about why I stopped them and I think they're doing something and they're waving their hands and I have my hand on my gun, now it's the recipe for disaster. You know, so we all need to take a deep breath and just try to figure this thing out. Now, because cops feel like they're being scrutinized, you actually feel that that's a good thing because it is going to make people really think, cops really think how they're about to handle, you know, a situation because of the scrutiny, because now everybody's got a phone, everything's being recorded. Uh, they have the body cams on. So does that, you think, are we headed in a good direction? That's what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> <laughs> good question. I, I, think, I think me personally, it's just my opinion, I think we're headed in a great direction. I believe, in my opinion, that all, every officer on the street should have a body camera on. Now, I don't think that that full eight-hour shift should be viewed by, every, by everyone because, you know, you, you're, you're in a car with, a, with, with your partner for eight hours, and it's just like you're with your best friend for eight hours, and, and you begin to know each other. And you talk about all kinds of things uh, in the car, most of which have nothing to do um, with police work. And you don't want that conversation being broadcast to the world. But I think that it is good to tape every event so that, so that, the, so that the general public can see everything that happened during that right. time. Because if they don't see everything that happened and the tape is cut, you know, cut and pasted, then that, <laughs> here come the conspiracy theorists, right? Here come the, oh, the officer was doing this and this happened and that happened. No, let's put everything out there of, of exactly what happened so, so we can see, you know, everything that's going on. And again, I'm not saying that an officer needs to get to the scene and say, well, hold on, let me stop, wait for the gunfight. Is this a, is this a good idea? No, you need to be safe. You need to, you need to go in there and handle the situation and, and protect property and people um, as mm -hmm. we always would and, and, and keep the peace. But at the same time, I think me personally, it's a good thing that uh, we are under a microscope. Um, because when I was in the, in, in the academy uh, inside of Philadelphia, one of the officers came in and there would be a constant question and answering of why do you need to be careful out there? What, do every, what does everybody have? And everybody would say, you know, cameras. So you need to watch what you say to people, blah, 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 blah. And this one officer came in um, who was already an officer on the street. And he said, well, why do you need to watch what because of cameras? You should be a good person anyway. You shouldn't be, <laughs> right. talking, to, yeah, you shouldn't be talking to someone the way you wouldn't talk to your mother or your grandmother anyway. Well, why do you have to change? Because there's a camera on. You should be a good person every day. So I thought that was a real, real intelligent uh, answer from him. Right. Like you should have good character, whether the camera's on or off. Exactly. Exactly. And we are making strides, right? I mean, they did away with chokeholds. And I don't know if they did that across the country, but I know a lot of police departments did away with like the chokeholds and stuff like that. So you know, police departments are definitely trying to change their procedures and, and how they do things to kind of eliminate some future stuff, you know? Right. Which is a good thing. Which, which, which again, I say is a, it's a good thing when we go to our use of force classes and we do our training and they teach us how, you know, in terms of the Eric Garner situation, not to, not to uh, have a knee on someone's back because they're fighting because they can't breathe. They're not fighting to get out of the cuffs. They're fighting because of, uh, I believe it's called asphyxia. You know, they, they right. actually can't, they're fighting for a breath. Right. So, um, so they continually push into us, you know, get off of his back. You can't be on his back and 
Don't put him in a chokehold. Fight him when he gets to the ground. Get him in cuffs. Turn him on his side. Eight officers don't need to be on top of him right now. Right. You know, things of that sort. So I think it's a good thing. Okay. On a personal note, where are you and your father right now in your relationship? I mean, he was missing for a huge part of your life. Uh, mm -hmm. He obviously missed you growing up and you had to grow up without a father. Are you guys making up for lost time? How old were you when he was released, by the way? I was the same year he was released. I was going into the police academy. So I okay. was 20. I think I was 27 or 28. Okay. Now nah, I had to be a little older than that. It was around 30 uh, when he was released. But our, to answer your question, our relationship is uh, we're, we're building. You know, it's kind of like trying to just build a relationship with a stranger, essentially, you know, unfortunately. Right. And, um, you know, all those fatherly things that I've missed out on kind of hurt me inside because I, I think I, I made a lot of mistakes. From not having a father there one thing i talk about in the book is uh losing my virginity at the age of 12. Mm. and um i think that that wouldn't have, wouldn't have happened had i had a father in the house to be able to teach me you know you don't need to you don't need to do those kind of things right now calm down with the with the female and, and, and the girls and things of that sort so our, our relationship is building we're trying a lot is dependent i won't say a lot is dependent on this case because whether whether we get exonerated or we don't get exonerated we'll continue to try to build but a lot of effort and um, it's bringing, you know, both of us together. Um, that's that's the subtitle of the book is how the criminal justice system tore my family apart and brought us back together because I, I'm able to talk to him. You know, because with a stranger, it, you have your first, your initial conversation and then it's like, well, what do you talk about after that? <laughs> you know, so, right. you know, we always try to bring it back to um, what we can do. What, what are we working on with this case and things of that sort? And he's very appreciative um, of what we have going on. Awesome. Now, you and your father, you have a powerful story. You're doing important things in the community. What key takeaway would you have for our listeners today? Um, I, I would say, my, you know, my passion is, is criminal justice. And uh, if, if anything, look at things with, with open eyes. You know, this, this country, we have over 300 million uh, white people and about 12 million black people. So, um, always take heed to, to what the minority is saying. You know, these things that you're seeing on tape and these cries that you're seeing from certain groups, I'm no advocate for Black Lives Matter, but I understand a lot of their argument. Um, these are arguments that they that, that the black community have, has had for years upon years. So it's not just, you know, them come, or it's not just a political statement. Um, if you look at some of Martin Luther King's earlier writings and some of the things that he has done and some of the marches that he's had, it's been towards police brutality. And, uh, you know, though, though I'm a police officer, you know, I'm, I'm also a person that understands the, what the plight of what the plight of African-Americans is. And I would just have, have everybody ask everybody to just have an open mind when it comes to criminal justice. And if you are a regular citizen and you are an African-American, I would urge you to try to get into law enforcement, um, become a lawyer, become a judge, become a police officer, because that'll change your mind also. You know, for some reason, I, I think within our community, within the African-American community, if you arrest someone black, it's it, you look at as a sellout or someone that's not down for the race. And uh, when you become a police officer, you understand that that's not the case, that there are some people, a lot of people that do wrong of every race. And you have to do in order to keep that community a safe community. That's an awesome key takeaway for sure. Now, you mentioned something. Do you mind me asking? You said you're no advocate for Black Lives Matter as an as an organization, I'm, uh, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. Can you yeah. comment on that a little bit? What what's your uh, beef there? Uh, well, some some of their I guess some of their political stances I, I, I probably don't stand for, 
but I understand their argument. I understand their argument of African-Americans lives mattering just as much as police officers lives. Um, I, I understand those things. It's just some, you know, politically, some, some of the things I might not line up with. Um, right. But I understand. I don't, I don't want that to negate their, their core message, which is that African-Americans lives do matter and we, and we should cherish them just as much as we cherish a white life, an Indian life, a, 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 a Hispanic life, a Latinx life, a police officer's life. We should cherish them all the same. Absolutely. Well, I want all of my listeners to buy your book. I'm going to make sure your uh, website, authorrashad.com. Is that right? Yes, sir. I'm going to make sure that I put that in the show notes. And uh, can people follow you on social media too? Do you ha- are you up on social media? Sure. My social media handle is, uh, my personal one is Camille Coleman, that's C-A-M-E-A-L, uh, Coleman, C-O-L-E-M-A-N. Um, I have a group page, which is Arthur Rashad Coleman's, uh, support, Arthur Rashad Coleman's support group for children of incarcerated parents. Um, Arthur Rashad on Instagram, Arthur Rashad on Tumblr. Gotcha. And uh, you can also see some of my blogs on um, ArthurRashad.com. Awesome. I'll make sure all that is in uh, the show notes. Well, thank you for coming on the Story King podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation, Rashad. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you having me. So that was my interview with Officer Rashad Coleman. I hope you found that as fascinating as I did. I encourage you all to go and buy his book. You can do that at his website, www.authorrashad.com. That link will be in the show notes. Don't forget to sign up on storykingbooks.com to get your free copy of Kane's Confession. Remember, if you're interested in starting your own podcast, you can visit my website or amazon.com and for less than $5, purchase my latest ebook resource, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash the story king. All those links will be in the show notes. One more thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me the favor of subscribing to it and leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, or the medium of your choice. And share it with your friends and family on social media. I would greatly appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the Story King Podcast, the show all about fiction, film, and form. Please join us next time. Until then. 